0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Rudy Giuliani has not been charged with any crime yet, but could that be changing soon? Prosecutors in the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office that Giuliani once headed have been investigating the former New York mayor and personal lawyer to former President Donald Trump. That became evident when they raided his apartment in the early morning hours two weeks ago. Joining me is Greg Farrell, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. Rudy Giuliani's lawyer offered to bring his client in for questioning by Manhattan federal prosecutors two months ago. Why didn't that happen?
0: Well, uh, this actually goes back a year and a half. So ever since Rudy Giuliani's uh, business associates, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, the two guys who were uh, charged a couple of years ago in November, late, late 2019 with campaign finance problems. Um, it, it's been reported that Rudy was also like a, a person of interest in that. And since then, since November of 2019, Bob Costello, his lawyer, has tried to uh, get Rudy in there under like either a proffer agreement or just like, is there anything you guys need to know from us? And it's been kind of like quiet, uh, no response Uh, from, uh, you know, from, well, no, I I shouldn't put it that way. The response from federal prosecutors in Manhattan has been, we'd love to have you come in and chat, but we're not going to tell you what we want, you know, that what we're specifically interested in. In other words, they were treating him kind of like he was a suspect. Um, They didn't want to give him advance notice of what they're interested in, what their investigation encompassed. So this has been kind of a, like a, a little bit of a, you know, a dance between rudy and his lawyer and the feds rudy i think has wanted to get you know put this behind him and you know move on um and the, the prosecutors in manhattan are like unwilling to like tell him what they're interested in that's why this become a stalemate and yes as recently as early march um yeah, you know, Rudy's lawyer once again said, "Why, you know, uh, why don't we just come in and tell you what we we're doing in Ukraine?" And they're saying like, "No preconditions. We just, you know, uh, you know, we to, if you want to come in and talk, come in and talk." And Giuliani's lawyer, who's also in the '70s, uh, a very old school guy who used to be a, prosec- a baby prosecutor mm-hmm. way back in the '70s at uh, in Manhattan, said, "Why are you guys doing this the hard way?" So that became the theme of the story, the, the headline, and all that.
1: Do do prosecutors meet with lawyers and clients when the client is the target of the investigation?
0: That's a little different. So when they're when they're when you have a target, then they don't want to allow the target uh, to just come in and decide what evidence to put forth. They want to you know keep their maximum flexibility, their ability to ask any range of questions. They want to, to hold to that and not give any sort of. Uh, tip as to what they might ask about, because they don't want, you know. Otherwise, why not just, you know, submit like mm-hmm. a series of written questions and, you know, rely on written responses. You know, make it easy for defense lawyers. No, the the prosecutors, I think, want to basically, you know, at their own time and choosing decide what they want to ask and when they want to ask it.
1: So then, does that indicate that Giuliani might be a target here? Well, it, seems point, like he yeah. the, it seems it, like he right, is. It right. seems like he is the target.
0: Right. They haven't declared it. And of course, they don't go about declaring that. And, um, you know, as of March, Rudy was not. It's clear that as of early March, Rudy was a subject, namely like he was involved with some characters who were under investigation over issues that were under investigation. But he himself was not a target. But there's no declaration of this from the Southern District of New York, but the fact that you'd send a bunch of FBI agents at 6 a.m. to collect all his electronic devices suggests that, yeah, he, he, like, it certainly seems like he's a target. They're acting like he's a target. And in the court of public opinion, and this is what's really angering Rudy's lawyer, in the court of public opinion, when you see a bunch of FBI agents show up at someone's apartment, the public you know, can only construe that as, oh, he must have done something wrong. So uh, basically Rudy's lawyer and Alan Dershowitz has said the same thing, that Alan Dershowitz is consulting with them, that you know, there's a way to do this. If you want the devices, you can just issue a grand jury subpoena. It's all secret. There's no you know, leak of this to the public, and we can negotiate as to whether or not something is, uh, falls under attorney-client privilege or executive privilege in the case of Rudy's most famous client, former President Donald Trump.
1: So now, here you have the former U.S. attorney from Manhattan, the former mayor of New York. How high a bar would it be to get a search warrant for him?
0: Extremely high, because yes, the former uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District, a former number three official in the Reagan Justice Department in the 1980s, uh, not just a two-term New York City mayor, but America's mayor, who was lauded for his you know, the valiant performance uh, that he gave after September 11th and going to all the uh, firefighters' funerals. He was indefatigable, and he became a symbol, you know, of a resurgent New York in the wake of those attacks, and then a presidential candidate. So for Rudy to be being treated like this, not just by the Justice Department, but by the very office which he led, is pretty astonishing. And so there's this disconnect, like what Rudy's lawyer seemed to know about this, doesn't add up to the it's almost as though the prosecutors went nuclear to take a step like this it's what they did with michael cohen and look what happened to michael cohen uh it ended badly for cohen so that's not to say it's going to end badly for rudy but it's there's a uh if you're in rudy's shoes there's a disturbing parallel to what happened to the last guy who was uh trump's lawyer um who had fbi agents come and clean out his house
1: now um The fact that the raid, does that indicate the beginning of the investigation, the middle of the investigation, the end of the investigation, or you can't tell?
0: Um, We can't tell, but I would guess the middle. So you don't do this unless you have enough to justify it to a judge that we need a search warrant and we can't give any advance notice because things might get cleaned or wiped. Uh, So that's something. However, it can't be near the end because, uh, or at least I doubt it, um, because there's going to be so much material that even if you had a well-formed thesis as to, you know, uh, allegations about someone doing something wrong, um, you're going to have to go through, like, a massive amount of material that is contained in those devices through a defined period of time, not up until the present day. But I think the search warrant was just through uh, basically the end of 2019. So this is all focused on Ukraine. So it's about that. But still, um, there's so much material that the feds are going to have to go through that it can't be like right at the one-yard line. That has to be that there's a, a bit of a ways to go before whatever they're going to file or do, they'll do.
1: Akeley, do you know exactly what they're... Investigating him about it's it's Ukraine, but what what about Ukraine?
0: So the search warrant that was uh, executed uh, was it la- I guess ten days ago, twelve days ago on Rudy's apartment. Um, you know, in addition to Rudy's electronic devices, it specified communications with certain individuals. Um, uh, a lawyer in Washington, uh, Victoria Tenzing, who, with her husband Joe DeGeneva, has been an outspoken proponent and supporter of President Trump uh, and was also involved with representations of clients in Ukraine. And then um, a journalist named John Solomon, who wrote a number of articles that um, uh, basically criticized or pointed out you know, uh, allegedly supposed purportedly negative information about the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Jovanovich, Um, And then a couple of Ukrainian, former Ukrainian officials who are widely believed, you know, in the West to be corrupt, um, who met with Rudy Giuliani and uh, gave him, you know, know, purportedly incriminating information about either Hunter Biden uh, or Joe Biden. So this all seems to be swirling around the attempt in 2018 and 2019 to get rid of Marie Jovanovic as the U.S. ambassador in Kiev, and also um, it coincides with an attempt to basically, uh, you know, create some kind of an investigation surrounding the Bidens that you know would have had an impact probably in the 2020 election.
1: And did Giuliani and his lawyer, did Giuliani or his lawyer go to Bain Justice to present their case or their
0: yes? So at the beginning of this. Uh, after Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman were charged in the fall of 2019 with, uh, you know, campaign finance violations. um, That was also at the time that Rudy had developed his whole thesis about, you know, corruption in the Biden family involving Ukraine and this energy company Burisma. And basically uh, what it would have done if you were to believe what Rudy's, you know, friends, the former and, you know, allegedly corrupt Ukrainian officials, told him was that, um, you know, A, Ukraine was involved in the hacking of Democratic emails in 2016, not Russia, and B, uh, you know, Biden, you know, was protecting his son and blowing up an investigation that would have exposed corruption. So it would have been a way to undercut the Mueller investigation, which was in full force at that time and causing Trump a lot of problems and sort of undermine that investigation by claiming and providing, you know, some support for the idea that you know, Russia never got involved in interfering in the twenty sixteen election. It was all Ukraine and it was on behalf of a cabal of Democratic officials, including, you know, Joe Biden. So that's the sort of alternative theory that Rudy was working on. And so when he was when it became clear that an investigation from the federal prosecutors in Manhattan was involved him or at least a couple of his business associates he wanted to shop this information somewhere. He realized he couldn't go to Manhattan with it because they had other interests. So he went to Maine Justice, uh, to Attorney General William Barr, not directly, uh, but it must have been, you know, a decision must have been made fairly high up in, uh, in late 19, 2019, early 2020, uh, to basically appoint the U.S. Attorney of Pittsburgh, the Western District of Pennsylvania, to basically look into Rudy's allegations about corruption by the Bidens in Ukraine. And so Rudy and his lawyer flew out to Pittsburgh in January of 2020, spent several hours before a team of five senior prosecutors and five senior FBI agents from that office, and outlined the whole theory of uh, surrounding Joe Biden, basically, you know, interfering with you know the Ukraine to protect his his son Hunter, uh, who was getting paid very well as a uh, to be on the board of directors of this, you know, dodgy energy company in Ukraine. So it's not clear that's gone anywhere they made that presentation there's been some follow-up some of the investigators in pittsburgh have since you know uh done an interview here or there but it doesn't it doesn't seem to have been and you know the u.s attorney's office obviously won't comment on it but if that investigation gained any traction at all it's not clear there's no evidence of that it seems to be kind of moribund
1: has giuliani's attorney said what his defense might be here
0: uh, yes, actually, uh, uh, Bob Costello has pointed out that if this is a FARA violation, in other words, a violation, if you're claiming that Rudy Giuliani violated the law that requires you know you to, to register with the Justice Department if you're representing a you know a foreign agent or basically the uh, you're representing a foreign entity, either individuals from a foreign country or you know the sovereign country itself or some kind of a company or government, you know, entity of a foreign company in the United States, you have to file what's known as a FARA form, F-A-R-A. So that has been, you know, that was, you know, floated against uh, Mike Flynn, that he never registered, you know, under FARA for his representation of Turkey. And um, basically what Juliana's lawyer has maintained is that there is an exception to FARA. You don't have to, you know, file you know, Farah, uh, if you're acting in defense of your client. In other words, you're really acting as a lawyer and not a lobbyist. If And in this case, Rudy, in his investigations in Ukraine, dealing with a lot of those foreign entities, was just gathering evidence in the defense of his client, Donald J. Trump, who happened to be the president of the United States. This is at a time when uh, Trump was, in fact, you know, the subject of Mueller's criminal investigation, into Russian interference in the election, so therefore any effort to present a defense for Trump uh, would would constitute, you know, the type of, you know, basically lawyer-client activity that does not require you to file for, you know, a FARA registration. So that's the theory, and um, you know, uh, that you know that's what that Rudy's lawyer has maintained.
1: Rudy has quite a team. You mentioned Alan Dershowitz before, but he has a yes. lot of people on his legal team.
0: Yes. So he has Bob Costello, who's a former colleague of his from the U.S. Attorney's Office of Manhattan back in the 1970s, and a longtime criminal defense lawyer in the New York area. So Costello's been representing him for at least a year and a half. He also just added uh, a team of prosecutors from a Brooklyn firm, mostly known for its local, you know, crime defenses, but it features a couple of guys, a former judge, retired judge, a um, uh, included among them who are experts in search and seizure warrants and also Dershowitz himself uh, this is one of his you know, uh, you know uh, strong points and it's clear from Dershowitz is advising them so he's not really like a lawyer for the team I think that's what a guy like Dershowitz does these days is you know uh, basically advises and consults but the fact that Dershowitz and the new guys in Brooklyn who have an interest in search and seizure law are involved. It indicates that it's pretty clear that they want to challenge not just the um, the search warrant that uh, was executed uh, in late April, but you know basically the uh, the iCloud the subpoena that through which the U.S. government a year and a half ago got basically you know most of the electronic data, you know call information from Rudy's electronic devices from uh, Apple Inc. in uh, late 2019.
1: So that will take a lot of money uh does Giuliani have that yeah. money
0: well you know i i've I've read press reports about that as well. It will take a lot of money, and that's the problem with Rudy having represented President Trump for free, basically for a couple of years is he was not making a lot of money um and uh you know it's yeah that's you know, I'm sure these guys are coming on board, you know confident that they'll get paid, but at the same time, you know money is an object it's not, and Rudy has facing like now this this big lawsuit from the Dominion, uh, you know, uh, that, that company that does the election machines that has sued, you know, Rudy and Sidney Powell and Trump's lawyers who claimed without any evidence that uh, the Dominion voting machines had been manipulated in order to produce a victory for Joe Biden a couple of months ago. So that's a, you know, some people might describe that lawsuit as frivolous, but, you know, that's going to cost Rudy money as well. That's a different representation with a different set of lawyers. So, yes, Rudy has to be, Rudy's legal bills are, are climbing, and it's clear from his divorce papers, the part of it that was public a few years ago, that, you know, you know his, 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 his financial resources are not infinite.
1: Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Greg Farrell. Derek Chauvin and three other former Minneapolis police officers involved in the death of George Floyd have been indicted by a federal grand jury for violating Floyd's constitutional rights during the arrest that sparked nationwide protests over police violence against black people. The indictment was unsealed Friday and comes less than three weeks after Chauvin was found guilty on separate state charges of murder and manslaughter for holding his knee on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. Joining me is Eric Larson, Bloomberg legal reporter. What are the charges that the feds have brought against Chauvin and the three other officers?
2: So in, in this case, there are three charges. They're all uh, civil federal civil rights violations here. Uh, the first count is against Chauvin, accuses him of depriving Uh, Mr. Floyd of his uh, civil rights, his right to be free from improper treatment by a police officer um, and violating his rights, uh, resulting in bodily harm and, of course, his death. The second charge is against two of the assisting officers, and they are accused of observing uh, Mr. Chauvin with his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. And essentially uh, failing to intervene, uh, they could say willfully failing to intervene, and resulting in his, uh, Mr. Floyd's rights being violated. Um, a third charge is against the uh, is against all of the officers, um, including a, the the fourth officer, and they're accused of uh, failing to offer medical assistance to Mr. Floyd when he clearly needed it.
1: So. We often hear about federal charges being brought when state charges fail, for example, in the Rodney King case. But here you have Chauvin already convicted of murder. The other officers haven't even gone to trial yet. Is it unusual to bring federal civil rights charges at this stage?
2: Well, I think we're seeing that this entire case is unique in in a lot of different ways. Just because uh, there have been so many instances of this kind of interaction between police and black men not resulting in this type type of action, right? So just the fact that they brought this, these charges at all is is very different here. Especially when you see these charges being brought against officers who were not accused of you know murder the way Chauvin was. They're accused of serious violations simply by not taking any action to inter. So that makes it pretty unusual. And I think to your point about a federal charges being brought on top of successfully argued uh, state charges, it just shows a, a signal really from the Justice Department, from the Biden administration, that there is a change of of tone in how these types of incidents are going to be handled by the federal government. I think it would have been uh, pretty unusual, even for the Biden administration um, in in, uh, a case such as this, to not do anything, even after a successful state case. Um, You know, as the attorney general um, of Minnesota, uh, Keith Ellison, said in a statement uh, last week after these charges were brought, he said the federal government has a responsibility to protect the civil rights of every American and pursue justice to the fullest extent. And I think that is the point that he was sort of getting at there. The fullest extent means you bring the charges if a violation has occurred, not just if the state charges fail.
1: And why is there a separate indictment of Chauvin? What is that for?
2: This stems from a separate incident between a Chauvin and a 14-year-old black boy in 2017. He was the responding officer to a dispute uh, between this boy and his mother. When the boy did not follow his instructions, Chauvin struck him so violently that stitches were necessary. He essentially choked him, strangled him until he passed out, and also had his knee on him to hold him in place for quite some time, even longer than what happened with Mr. Floyd. So obviously um, it would be a good question to find out why it has taken so long why you had to have this much higher profile murder take place for this incident to come to light. Clearly, the details around it would have already been known to a lot of people for several years now and nothing happened. But at any rate, uh, the charges have been brought now um, and he is accused of violating the civil rights of that boy as well.
1: So, what does the Justice Department have to prove in a case like this? Do they have to prove that they that the police officers intended to violate the civil rights of the the victims? Justice Department have to prove in a case like this. Do they have to prove that they intended to that the police officers intended to violate the civil rights of the victims?
2: I don't know if it, if intent would work that way in, in, in a case like this, because it's, it, it the charges are pretty specific in what they say, uh, just that they were aware of what was happening in front of them and chose to not take action. So, um, you, you know, when you're in Chauvin's case, you know, being a, accused of, of murder, um, you know, you had to even even in that case, they didn't charge him with with first degree murder, which would have required um, some in, proof of intent. So it, in a case like this, it's, you know, it's just going to be showing exactly what happened. I mean, they they are on video observing um, this, these actions and failing to intervene. Uh, so I think what we'll see is not so much a question of intent as, as the defense lawyers possibly trying to raise um, questions about what uh, what these other officers were really responsible for what what they were really required to do that will point to some evidence that a few of the officers who were actually training at the time, they were rookies, um, that uh, that they were just essentially doing what Chauvin uh, was requiring them to do and that he that it wasn't up to them to, to question him beyond they did what they did. Um, whereas I think the prosecutors are saying that you need to go beyond this saying, hey, do you think maybe we need to Uh, move uh, this man around so he doesn't die, they're going to need, they're going to show that they should should have potentially physically intervened and stopped a murder from happening in front of them. Uh, But you can see that their defense is probably, it would make sense that they're going to blame it uh, as much as they can on Chauvin and say, hey, these were uh, rookies and they were, uh, it wasn't their place to intervene.
1: Do you know what what Chauvin's defense to the federal charges would be? I
2: I, I don't know what it would be exactly. I, we did reach out to his lawyer um, for comments after he the the grand jury indictment was unsealed. Um, we didn't. He declined to comment. Um, I mean, obviously the the defense strategy didn't work out in the state case with those much more serious charges. Um, But you can imagine that a lot of the defense could translate into this case as well, you know, trying to um, blame Floyd for what happened, Uh, you know, blame his death um, on, you know, his alleged health elements and things like that, like they tried in in the federal case. When you're looking at these uh, less uh, you know, serious charges. Obviously, civil rights violations are very serious, but they're not as as, as serious as as a murder, no. or manslaughter. Um, that they they might be able to push these defenses a little further, potentially. Who knows?
1: These new federal charges are separate from the federal civil investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department and its practices.
2: So, the Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, right after the uh, conviction of Mr. Chauvin uh, occurred, he announced that the Justice Department was opening an investigation into the policing practices in Minneapolis, um, specifically as a result of of the George Floyd, uh, George Floyd death. Um, he said that the DOJ is gonna be reaching out to community groups and uh, members of the public to try to find out about their experiences with the police. Um, so this is something that I think a lot of people were expecting from the Biden administration. Um, and not just Minneapolis specifically, but, you know, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department is able to use these so-called pattern or practice investigations uh, to investigate police forces in, in various cities. And they've, they've done so in the past. And, and the probes can often end with um, a consent decree. Uh, between the police departments and the Justice Department where they agree to various reforms and have to stick to those reforms, and the Justice Department will keep track of that and make sure that they are sticking to that. Um, so that is something that uh, that has been done before, but it really dropped off uh, during the Trump administration, uh, not too surprisingly. And uh, I think it was always expected that um, if Biden were elected, uh, that the Civil Rights Division would... Uh, have a new focus on these types of pattern or practice investigations.
1: Chauvin is also requesting a new trial. What are the grounds that he is claiming for that?
2: So Mr. Chauvin is requesting a new trial in the state case uh, following his conviction, arguing that, uh, among other things, uh, the, the trial never should have taken place in Minneapolis to begin with. Uh, he argues that the, the jurors couldn't possibly have been fair just because of um, all of the emotion underlying everything that happened in the city um, around these events that it should have, it, it should have taken place elsewhere. Um, he also signaled, uh, you know, after the verdict was read out, um, his lawyer signaled that he put, could potentially appeal um, for, among other things, uh, claiming that um, Representative Maxine Waters had made inappropriate comments uh, encouraging a guilty verdict um, or during a protest and that somehow that could have tainted jurors. Um, who were not sequestered at that time, although uh, there's no evidence that they necessarily heard or saw the footage of her saying that, but that would be something that could potentially um, be argued on appeal. And in fact, the judge, uh, in, in the state case agreed that uh, those comments were inappropriate and said that, you know, elected officials should not be commenting on trials like that, uh, which was pretty uh, strong words. Um, but, uh, it's, far from certain that either of these arguments would, um, would will go very far, but there's certainly something that the courts will consider.
1: Thanks, Eric. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.